0: Okay, welcome class. This is um, an audio lecture on the Eisenhower years. If you haven't done so already, please print out 8-2, and we will go over this as it we, were, we would um, in class. Um, I'm hoping that as I go along, I will follow the outline, and I will add in some more significant information for you so you can do your practice quiz. Okay, here we go. The Eisenhower years, 1952 to 1960. I put A as the happy days, and I would like you to talk about this period of time, the 50s in general, as the two-faced decade. Why? Well, because it's going to be characterized on one hand, for its economic prosperity, its rise of middle-class suburban life, and its relative social cohesion. And in other words, it's gonna it's gonna have the impression that everything is really hunky-dory. Really, everything is set in stone. Everything's really nice. A lot of people are gonna have um, the ability to uh, raise kids in in the comfort of a suburban home. Uh, uh, the best evidence I can show you. Of this positive aspect of the 50s uh, are the Levitt Homes that we talked about. These are suburban uh, developments uh, on Long Island, but of course in other areas of uh, the country, um, it's also reflected these values and these feel these good feelings in TV shows like I Love Lucy and Leave It to Beaver. Um, if you haven't had a chance to see them, they are shows that really highlight the you know quintessential traditional American family, um, traditional family, uh, Protestant. Uh, white rules, um, and it was just a kind of, you know, uh, a, a society in which um, kind of knew what to expect, and they were happy with that. Um, also, I cannot under, overstate the significance of cars during this time. Uh, as as uh, proliferated in advertisement and commercials, um, the car for the youth represented a chance to escape um, for, um, you know, adults. Uh, it was a chance to kind of uh, take their families to um, other parts of the country to do joy rides. Um, in many ways, unlike the metropolitan train system, the subway train system, um, cars are very individualistic. So it kind of coincides with the traditional uh, American form of rugged individualism we've seen since 1830s and Jacksonian era. But. The reason why it's two-faced, it's because at the same time that all that stuff's happening, there's also a period of um, a lot of fear, uh, mostly uh, underscored by McCarthyism and the Second Red Scare. This period of time where we started to, um, you know, question uh, anyone who uh, differ- detracted from uh, the standard American mold, if you will, anyone who quote-unquote lived de- deviant lifestyles. That that are that's pretty much anyone who did not have a wife. Uh, did not have kids, did not have uh, own a home, uh, did not you know contribute to um, the capitalistic marketplace, um, people that are, were basically odd, uh, people today that we would kind of glorify and raise on a pedestal because we're in a world now that we really identify and highlight um, diversity. But anyone who deviated from that cookie-cutter traditional setting that I just told you about as shown in I Love Lucy or Leave it to Beaver, they're going to be under heavy suspect why well the the whole idea was why why wouldn't you want to have that and more importantly what are you doing in your free time if you're isolated for example a lot of people that were homosexuals during this time because they were not able to celebrate their lifestyle openly They're going to kind of uh, have an underground culture. And as a result, that will be under heavy suspect. Uh, There's going to be an association with things that we do not know and the fear that it might possibly be Marxism. Marxism, of course, is an ideology that was in hell bent on overthrowing systems of oppression. Um, They're very interested in, you know, uniting the proletariat and the working class and kind of launching a revolution, whether it may be peaceful or you know in terms of uh, conflict and violence that's up for interpretation but pretty much anyone who has deviant or uh different lifestyles from the typical american mold will be heavy suspect that includes uh, jewish people people in hollywood people in high-level states of federal government uh, mccarthyism not to be mistaken with macarthur mccarthyism is uh named after a senator named joseph mccarthy from wisconsin who basically uh, rode the wave of anti-communism during this time and gained some political capital by accusing uh, people in federal uh, positions of government of being communists or communist sympathizers. Now, I have to be honest with you, the Alger-Hiss case and the Rosenberg case, those are two cases where uh, we've convicted Americans of uh, proliferating and disseminating uh, really, really, really high, uh, highly class-profiled information to Soviet channels um, were convicted, and in in some cases, like the Rosenbergs, they were uh, sentenced to death. So there were elements of Soviet um, infiltration in our society at the time. But obviously, uh, the Second Red Scare is characterized as, a, as an over-exaggeration, a hysteria, if you will, um, very much like you would see in The Crucible um, that was written by Arthur Miller, who incidentally was also someone who was targeted. He was a playwright during this time that was targeted by uh, these very same people like McCarthy. Um, another thing that kind of scared people were the Soviets. They, they, they possessed nuclear weapons in 1949 as a result of some spies uh, giving those secrets to them, and we no longer had a monopoly over atomic weaponry. Um, In many ways, that could alter foreign policy uh, significantly. We can't go around being the big bad guys, threatening, you know, uh, with the big stick policy, if you will. Um, We now have to play a a little bit more of a chess game, a little bit more of a calculation, um, now that the Reds have uh, nukes in 1949 um, of course, and there's always racial segregation despite Harry S. Truman's um, executive order of desegregating the military, we do still have as and also pro- uh, promulgated by uh, the suburban uh, the rise of suburbia racial segregation. Uh, we have this concept called white flight in which people who could afford to live out of urban cities go into suburban lands um, in which kind of, deplete and uh, turn these cities or sectors of these cities into really, really poor neighborhoods. Now, I'm not issuing blame here. I need you to understand that. These are trends and migratory patterns uh, that have an effect on our culture. But the the interesting thing is that there's no one really to blame. Um, everyone is pretty much motivated on self-interest, and we can't defeat that. That's a human nature. But if you're a person that just fought in World War II, you're really... Benefiting from the GI Bill, um, of course, you would want to move out from the Bronx, so to speak, and go to some places like you know out Farmingdale or Levittown, and, and bring your family. Um, you're not going to think uh, on the implications of that and how it that affects the Bronx. So we do have the uh, the, the further agitation of, of racial segregation as a result of some of these patterns that I've mentioned before. B. Eisenhower takes command. The election of 1952, honestly, you have to really realize that this is going to be monumental in the fact that this will be the first time that a Republican president, uh, president will dominate the office in, in 20 years of Democratic leadership. Of course, Democratic leadership has been characterized by the most popular Democratic president, I think, FDR, and his flagship uh, you know, campaign of the New Deal. I mean, whether or not it was effective or not didn't matter. The New Deal has become heavily associated with the Democratic Party to the chagrin of a lot of conservative Democrats still in the South. These are old Confederate, you know, Democrats, state rights guys. But for the most part, the Democratic Party has really embraced this bigger government, more policy, and helping some of the working class and poor. Because of that, the Republicans, and of course World War II, never had a chance to really dominate the presidency. But here we have the Republicans nominate Ike, a nickname for Dwight D. Eisenhower. And the Republicans nominated Dwight um, D. Eisenhower over Senator Robert Taft, also another Republican, you know, during the primaries. And this is really important because this showcases the Republican strategy in trying to beat the Democrats. And Ike, of course... He's a war hero. He's won uh, a lot of critical acclaim in his uh, gallant uh, leadership in World War II. Although some historians have really criticized his military strategies, that's not here nor there. Uh, the people, again, like I said, it doesn't really matter what's the effect, the impact. What is the the image of Dwight D. Eisenhower? And he's a war hero. Senator Robert Taft, in comparison, is conservative. He's your typical 1920s laissez-faire people. Uh, the public at this point in the 1940s, they don't want to hear that. So the Republicans change strategies of pushing what I will call later modern republicanism. It's a different uh, different mask, so to speak, a different type of platform for the republican parties because just as much as the democrats have started to shift so are the republican party because remember they want to gain votes so it's really important to understand that there's a there's a beginning of a transitional period here that will kind of reach its peak uh i think in 1964 with the passage of the civil rights act and uh that will be the You know, the final nail to the coffin for these conservative Democrats who really long have tolerated the overly liberal policies starting from FDR, and they'll just jump over right to their conservative Republican Party, but we'll talk about that later on. Conservatives are not going down without a fight, and they're really upset with kind of you know, placating to the electorate, even though they want to get power. They don't like the idea of kind of going against their principles. So they really, you know, negotiate with the moderate Republicans in their own party to put Nixon, Richard Nixon for vice president. And this is really important because this, again, is another example of how, you know, political compromise and uh, backdoor deals really have an impact on the nation. At this point, no one really thought Nixon would ever be president of the united states but he's won lots of praise for being um an anti-communist persecutor in his own state in california so this is you know not only joseph mccarthy's capitalizing on the red scare other people like richard nixon were as well Of course, the Democrats nominated a governor named Adlai Stevenson. He, The best way I could say is he's your more run-of-the-mill FDR-like liberal Democrat New Dealer, and um, he's pretty tough. Uh, He stood up against McCarthy and won the admiration of the Democrats. They're riding on that New Deal, uh, that wave. They found Truman to be a little bit lackluster. His fair deal, deal policies really did not gain much traction during the age of trying to fight the the Russians and the checking Russian expansion in Europe uh, during during the 1940s, late 1940s, 50s. The campaign highlights, the only thing you really should know is that um, because of character, Uh, You know, we're not having Eisenhower really being attacked, but Nixon is going to be charged by Democrats for misappropriating funds. That's a way of using campaign funds for your own personal use. How Nixon will survive this attack is in his famous Checkers speech, which is outlined under B uh, subcategory I, which is the name of a dog uh, that uh, that was given to him. Uh, It was basically a bribe by a donor. And uh, Nixon's going to use media, uh, like Roosevelt, instead of radio, he's going to use the television to appeal to the emotional ethos of people, claiming you could take all these finances away from you, you could take the funds away, but please don't you dare take my checkers. And in many ways, it melted the hearts of lots of people. And think of it like this. Um, it's a distraction. When you appeal to the emotional effects of the people, you're not really... You're not really having time to question uh, the other appropriated ones right people are starting to you know downplay some of these scandals and we're gonna see the beginning of uh, the of open or blatant uh, corruption in politics remember people get desensitized and uh, politicians on both sides this is not just a Republican thing this is a Democrat thing too um, the tolerance level of the masses are um it's going to be greater and greater, especially when we get to, you know, uh, Bill Clinton in the 90s uh, with the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And, of course, to all, all the way up to Donald Trump. So we will uh, we'll talk about that more. But the, the checker speech is important to know because it is a way in which Nixon uh, saved uh, his political future by using television um, and appealing to the, again, the emotional mass of the people, which is ironic because the television, again, will be the same thing that will cost him a victory in the 1960 election with his Democratic opponent, John F. Kennedy. And we'll talk about that later. Domestic policies. Um... He's going to adopt the style uh, that most conservatives would appreciate. Um, he's going to take a Coolidge like stance, except he's going to recognize the power of the federal government, but he's going to take a step back. He's used to delegating of authority as a general in Europe, and he's going to do the same thing. He's going to fill up the cabinet with very successful corporate executives. For example, Secretary of Defense Charles Wilson will be former head of General Motors. And the idea is that, you know, you put these people in charge and they'll know what to do and they're experts. Of course, there's going to be a lot of criticism of putting someone that was once General Motors, someone who's gaining contracts and uh, quotas and, uh, during the World War II, uh, and you're putting him in Secretary of Defense, which is, of course, a job that's supposed to be uh, deciding on matters of security, war, and other defense matters. There seems to be the beginning of a conflict of interest when you're putting some of these corporate exec guys in office, and I have to say it's not it's not uh, always true. You know, um, we we recently had Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. He was the uh, ex CEO of ExxonMobil. <clears throat> and um, you know it's too early to tell, but uh, you know, based on what I can see, he seems to have done a pretty decent job, uh, one in which has not really kind of secured oil interest for himself. So it's not always the case, but we always have to kind of be, in any Republican democracy, um, we always have to kind of be wary of appointing uh, any corporate interests in the, the reign of uh, the public sphere, making sure that they don't make policies that impact or benefit them at the expense of the people within this republic. Um, obviously, other than that, the press is always going to criticize him for not really uh, leading. They're going to see pictures of him playing golf and leading most of uh, the nation to his subordinates in the cabinet, people like Charles Wilson or John and, and his brother Alan Foster Dulles. These are the uh, the director of the CIA and the secretary of state, respectively. But later research, I'm going to tell you, suggests that he wasn't as disengaged as he thought. I mean, I feel like people, you know, when you look at a picture, um, it speaks a thousand words, but those words may not necessarily be true. I mean, every time that, you know, Trump goes to Mar-a-Lago down in Florida, people freak out. And I always say to them, um, relax, it's a it's a hard job. Just because he's somewhere else doesn't mean he's doing he's not doing his job. Same thing with Barack Obama going to Hawaii on vacation or George Bush, for example, going back to Texas. It's a very tremendous hard job. And I feel like sometimes we demand 24 um, 7 service from these people. So, you know, Eisenhower's starting to get attacked from this as well. Despite that, he is going to be um, one of his crowning achievements is going to be in the idea of pushing for a new face for the Republican Party. It's called modern republicanism. He's a fiscal conservative. His first priority is to balance the budget over years of deficit spending started by the New Deal program. Um, his be- budgets annually, yearly are not always in balance, but he really came close to curbing federal spending than any of his successors. That's really important to understand, for, especially for some people out there that are fiscally conservative. He's re- the real deal. Despite being a military man, he's trying to figure out ways to cut costs without uh, jeopardizing the security of this nation. He's really going to try to do that, and I, and, and for that, I kind of respect that. Uh, In the social aspect, he's kind of a moderate. I would never put him as a liberal by any means, but he's going to accept the legitimacy of New Deal programs and its impact on the working class and minority groups and he's going to even go as far as extend some of them. Again, uh, You know, he's not a champion for minority rights by any means, but he's going to see the, the political value of that, and that really characterizes modern republicanism. It's the idea of remaining fiscally conservative while acknowledging the New Deal spirit and or programs that were were suggested and proposed during the 1930s. So he's going to extend Social Security to 10 million more citizens. He's going to, under his administration, uh, raise the minimum wage. Uh, Additional public housing will be built under his administration. He will consolidate welfare programs, however, and create departments like Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, all hewed together. Under uh, Oveta Kulpalby, which, by the way, you should note is the first woman in a Republican cabinet. So, you know, that's a, that's a feather in Eisenhower's cap. We have a man that's trying to consolidate things and make things more efficient while not throwing away the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, that we see in uh, some other conservative circles. Rather than cut all the programs, he's saying, well, how can we make these programs cheaper, more efficient? And, of course, you can always criticize on that but you have to acknowledge that this is different than your 1920s conservative uh, republican his reforms of course are are going to be limited however he's not a new dealer he's going to oppose federal health care insurance yes folks this debate over federal health care insurance will span on uh, as early as the 50s and he will oppose it and he will also oppose federal aid to education to my constitutionalists out there you can understand why The Constitution explicitly reserves the right of education to state governments. Eisenhower wasn't really willing to bend the Constitution that much. He was no Lincoln. He was no Roosevelt. Perhaps, and again, this is bolded for emphasis, the biggest Act that he signed was really goes by down to his name is uh, the Interstate Highway System. 1956, he's gonna he's going to encourage this passage, use the bully pulpit so to speak to encourage the Highway Act, in which will authorize the construction of 42,000 miles of interstate highways. It's gonna link all major cities throughout the nation. I can't tell you uh, the the, I can't overstate the um, the economic importance of this. It's going to create jobs it's going to create highways it's going to promote the trucking industry uh, it's going to accelerate the growth of suburbs as we talked about because now you have routes to get to areas like the suburbs however it's going to have a negative impact on industry and you should always keep this in mind whenever something happens in our society there will be a cost benefit analysis that you should be running something positive will happen as well as negative. negative negative impact obviously is the railroad industry people are not using that anymore public transportation is going to go down. And if you think that's not a not a bad thing, well, think of that like this. In our current state of New York, people like Robert Moses who's going to be the architect of some of these highways. He's going to benefit from these federal and state funds that are going to be issued by the Highway Act. He's going to create uh, arteries of roads of, of asphalt and highways and parkways, and his whole claim is going to be, well, we're doing this to relieve congestion, but the problem is, when the more roads, the more ability for Americans to buy cars. The more cars, the more traffic. And if you're not going to invest in public transportation, you're really going to significantly alter the culture of a given area. And anyone who knows how to drive now, they you can understand, or at least been in a car trying to get out of New York, Around four to six, you can understand how our road system has a major impact. Had we had public transportation, meaningful public transportation, efficient, on-time, clean public transportation, perhaps we would be able to transport large blocks of people going in the same direction without taking up too much space. But that's just my idea. Not to mention the fact that we're no longer, Americans are no longer really... Uh, encouraged to take railroads or public transportation. You have people of certain means to buy cars, while the poor, again, left behind as a result of suburbanization, are going to have to take sub, uh, trains and subways. That'd be fine if the taxpayer dollars could, in fact, necessitate this, the, the maintenance right, and the efficiency of them. So we have the, the degradation of public transportation while... Um, losing the opportunity to see different social classes, which is really important because people need to be exposed of other people. People don't know or are ignorant of the other way how someone else lives. That leads to fear. Fear leads to hate. and You know, that old Star Wars dark side business. So these are some of the things that you should be thinking about. And of course, environment, I think, goes without saying. Uh, Prosperity during his uh, reign under Eisenhower. Uh, domestic le- legislation was modest. Um, however, the, inflate, the inflation rate will average only 1.5%. That's really good. The federal budget will have a surplus three out of the eight years of his presidency. So um, th- that means that he's not going to be spending that much, and we will the budget that was given for the government – He's not going to be using, which is really great because he's cutting down some stuff. So again, this is a sign of his conservative, uh, hawkish uh, cutting of spending. 1945-1960, uh, the per capita disposable income of Americans more than tripled. Um, you have to understand this is, this is significant on all levels. I know in the Gilded Age we can talk about how industrialization raised the standard of living for all, but we still have a big gap between the, the rich and the poor. Here we're starting to see the gap closing, and uh, despite the true influence on any president on the economy, if you're a president during an, econo- an age of economic prosperity, you're going to get credit for it, just as much as if you're a president that uh, happens to be in a really, really bad economic era, like Herbert Hoover, for instance, or even, uh, Barack Obama, both Republican and Democrat. I'm telling you, I'm showing you that there's just two different parties. It happens to everybody. You're going to get blamed for it. So Eisenhower is going to be really credited for, um, a good economy. For my AP students that are really thinking outside the box, a good thing to think about is, well, to what extent were his policies effective on the economy? That that answer is a thesis waiting to happen. And that's the whole point of AP folks, to start thinking about these notes and using them uh, uh, and, and, and then coming up with your own beliefs and opinions. And I do hope to God that you come back uh, next class to talk to me about some of these things. Really challenge me on that. By the 1950s, the average American family uh, had twice the real income of a comparable family during the boom years of 1920s. So I, I have to say that again, the average American family will have twice the real income of a similar family during the boom years of 1920s. So no longer are uh, you know some people are getting rich and we're getting uh, you know we're getting saturated in finances and we're getting drunk with expectation in the 1920s. but this is real stability. And, and of course, you know, this is why we call it the happy days. Of course, with all these achievements, or at least perceived achievements, it shouldn't surprise you that the election in 1956, Ike will win again against Demo- Democrats for an even greater margin than in 1952. Uh, however, I have to note that Democrats will still maintain control of both houses of Congress. should highlight that because uh, if you're thinking all this time, I was telling you about some of the socially moderate things he's accepted. A good thing to kind of be critical of is, is, well, is Eisenhower really genuinely caring about some of these social issues? Or is he doing this to be pragmatic? Can he afford to be really conservative when both houses of Congress are dominated by Democrats, who would probably most likely support a little bit more like it depends. We would have to look at some, what are the numbers of the the liberal wing within the Democratic Party versus the conservative wing within the Democratic Party. Um, so that would be something kind of interesting to research. And again, you, you lead by curiosity, folks. You have the internet. I, as a teacher, am no longer the dispensary of knowledge. You have to, I'm the facilitator, facilitator of making connections. Go out and, and think about this. To what extent uh, what what was the political situation where uh, you know that, that, that informed Eisenhower's social policy? But we will talk more about that later. I would like to turn our attention um, to uh, D out of the um, in the outline under the title Civil Rights Movement because I kind of want to talk about Eisenhower um, and his domestic policies, and then uh, my next video lecture that I'll post will be on his foreign policy achievements. So take the time to flip over to D, titled Civil Rights Movement. Civil Rights Movement. Um, So, uh, you know, to say that the Civil Rights Movement, we have this tendency, um, students that I teach, have this tendency to think that the Civil Rights Movement just popped up during the 50s out of nowhere. But there are signs uh, dating back all the way to the early 1900s, as far back as the Niagara Convention, as you remember, people like Willem Du Bois. Uh, and Booker T. Washington, and Marcus Garvey. These are all civil rights leaders that were trying to figure out what's the best strategy of uh, responding to uh, widespread segregation, Uh, not just the South but the North. But by the 50s, we're beginning to see some evidence that the American public is a little bit more open, albeit not as open as we are today. I mean, we're still on our way for achieving full racial Equality, but uh, you know the fact that Jackie Robinson becomes the first black baseball player to be hired and play on a major league team is huge. Um, You know, you're you're not going to get that since 1880. So. Again, kind of like I Love Lucy and those TV shows, and, and leave it to Beaver, you know, Jackie Robinson um, really is evidence of, of, the, of the, the beginning of the, the tide that's changing, you know. If any if time you want to know uh, what the ethos of our countries is doing, look into television, look into sports. You can really see that. And I don't have to tell you the revealing nature of uh, shows like Modern Family. And, of course, the uh, NFL controversy with uh, Kaepernick, to tell you that. But just keep that in mind. As you're writing your your essays, you might always want to constantly make those connections. As I said before, in 1948, Truman will integrate the U.S. Armed Forces uh, by inducing an executive order. And he will introduce a civil rights legislation in Congress. I said introduce because it's not going to gain traction. As I told you, um, the public, we're kind of, we have ADD. We get distracted very easily, and again, we were more interested in checking Soviet expansion in Europe and, uh, you know, and in Asia. The blacks in South, however, are still going to be very segregated from whites in schools and most public facilities. Should highlight public between public and private. Public, of course, is anything that is uh, run under taxpayer dollars. A good question to ask is, well, how long will it take for private? Institutions to allow people of color into uh, their areas. I mean, because you can make the argument, the legal argument, that the government has no right, especially if it's a business within a state. The federal government has no right to police what a business owner who who and what a business owner can allow in. I mean, for example, if you're running a barbecue joint in Georgia, you know that serving black people will lead to a decrease in more white customers because people don't want to be sitting with them. As a business owner, you're going to probably segregate and bar any black customers from entering your, your joint. To what point should the federal government get involved in that? And we will talk about a Supreme Court case that talks exclusively about the example that I just told you. So we'll talk about that. But I, when I say public facilities, we're we're still on our way, and it's going to even be longer to have private facilities um, kind of accept some of uh, some people of color. Um, As we talked about before, just note that, you know, black people will be barred from voting through poll taxes, literacy tests, and grandfather clauses and intimidation. So again, it's de jure rights that were achieved during Reconstruction, right? The 15th Amendment guarantees the right of suffrage for black people, but how can you do that when you have state laws that are, you know, in a sinister fashion, subtly curtailing black voting power? How can you vote if you're black? If you know that the Ku Klux Klan might firebomb your house? So we have to start thinking about what's going on beyond the law. You know, region students, you know, memorize laws and say, "Well, you know, this is a sign of change." You know, we've had the 15th Amendment all the way, you know, in the 1860s. Like, well, what, what's going on? Why are these black people upset? But you know, when you start to look at how state laws, uh, you know, disregard or ignore federal laws protect these rights um you start to understand a little bit of the civil rights movement um and again um this is not just in the south we we as northerners have a tendency to think that this is just a southern problem but because of the great migration you should note that by the uh, 1900s 1919 really 1917 1919 there's gonna be a mass movement of blacks from rural south to urban uh south and the north why looking for jobs well the reason why i'm telling you that is because Black people are now looking for jobs. They're going to clash with other working class white working class Americans, and that's going to contribute to this idea that civil rights is a holistic national movement that needs to happen, not just something that's in a region. We tend to overlook that. We overlook tend to look, uh, you know, the segregation policies in the north uh, through through our real estate laws. Again, these are state laws that circumvent uh, or ignore. The federal protections that were mandated by the 14th and the 15th amendment since the 1800s. Think about that, you know, the federal government issuing, you know, a law, and the expectation is the federal government, um, those laws should be followed. And now we have these state governments that are circumventing that. Now, of course, you know, we can always talk about, like, that's right or wrong, or laws meant to be followed, and blah, 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 but that's something that's really cool, and that's that's worthy of debate. You know, you see, this is why I want you guys to start looking at these notes, so we can, you know, I don't want to be up here talking by myself. I would like to have a challenging debate, so keep this in mind. In the North, black voting bloc will switch to Democratic Party. As you know, it will support FDR's New Deal legislation. Um, that's really big because, you know, um, the Republican Party was historically the black party. It was the party of Lincoln that freed them, and now we're beginning to see the Democrats uh, slowly take away that voting block, and that will have some consequences in politics in the future. Um, So perhaps this is why modern republicanism is a response to that. Perhaps if the Republican Party was or showed signs of Uh, conscientious uh, reforms to people of color, perhaps we would stop this growing tide. And we'll talk about how this kind of goes with Eisenhower's administration in a bit. Another reason why people started to kind of question longstanding segregation policies is not just about politics, right? The Republicans are thinking twice about, uh, you know, uh, being conservative and keeping black people segregated because they're losing it to the Dems you know, uh, it's not just that Truman forced the. US. Army to be integrated. It's not even the fact that we've got Jackie Robinson as a baseball player, but it's the Cold War. How can we fight an ideological war, right? A PR battle between the you know, the, the other powerful rival, the Soviet Union, that preaches Marxist ideology, communism, You know, communism, for whatever it is, I mean, you might not like it. The idea, forget what is or how it's applied, the idea uh, is to create equality. And it's really hard and getting increasingly hard for the United States to preach democracy under a capitalist framework while having a segregated society. And the Soviets are going to capitalize on that, no pun intended, they're going to take advantage of that. So it's a matter of U.S.'s reputation to not only ourselves but to the world that democracy does work. So we have to kind of fix some of the problems that we have within our democracy. Things like freedom and justice doesn't fly. We don't have any, you know, we don't have any standing power. We lose our clout, our influence around the world when we have people getting lynched, black people getting lynched and white people watching with relish like it's a you know, it's a football game. So we need to make sure that we purge ourselves of these high, you know, hypocritical tendencies. So I wonder, you know, had we not had this rival, would we had such a, you know, an urgent need to rid ourselves of racism? Perhaps we would, you know, we would eventually, I know it. You know, the arc of, you know, justice bends slowly forward. But, I don't know if we would do it with the same fervor and intensity that we did in the nineteen fifties and sixties, had it not been for our competition with the Soviets. So, remember that there is some connection between domestic policy and foreign policy during this time. One of the biggest challenges for the civil rights movement was desegregating schools, because you know schools have always been the institution that um, you know it's the springboard for the American dream, right? 1830s public school education was designed to not only teach a well-informed electorate but it's also designed to teach you know the, our youngsters skills that they could use in the future to be active members in, a, in, in our in our economic capitalistic society to be successful. So if these schools are you know segregated and this the, the resources are not getting allocated fully, you know, the you know, civil rights groups like the NAACP, the National Association of the Advancement of Colored People, they're going to make that argument. You know, look, we're, we, we want to be part of America. We want the American dream. We want equal opportunity. No one's really talking about equality as equal-equal. No one's really thinking about that. Think about this. It's about equal opportunity, and schools are a microcosm of our greater society. The first thing we should do is look to our schools, and if we can fix them, perhaps maybe future generations can fix greater parts of the country. So this is why the NCAA is going to fight to try to overturn the Supreme Court decision in the case of Plessy B. Ferguson. As you know, it is a case in which they ruled that it's okay to be separate as long as they're equal. Right? And, the re- and the way they're going to do that is through test case litigation, as you probably already know. If you don't know, you can tell you know, ask me when, when you see me. And the, the biggest case that was really pushed up with the help of, And the organization and then NAACP remember these are things that are not just random you know these civil rights groups find cases where people want to sue states or the government at large and then they want to test right the validity of the amendment by bringing it to the supreme court and as you know you know judicial review gives that power to the supreme court justices if they they rule in favor then they can strike down a law you don't have to convince mass mass people of passing a congressional act to give right more rights to black people you just bring it to the courts and basically what you're saying is hey listen there are laws in place we just want the country to uphold to them and brown v board of ed is exactly that case it's a great landmark case it's going to be brought up by these naacp lawyers um most specifically you should really know him Thurgood Marshall. He's going to argue that again. Segregation is something that violates the protection clause found in the Fourteenth Amendment. You can't do that, right? There should the, the protection clause, as you don't know, is you know, no state law or any law shall be made that will discriminate against any citizen on the account of race. That will and it'll later be interpreted for uh, sex, and then later interpreted for sexuality. And this is where we're getting, you know, the wedding, the wedding cake. Uh, debate whether or not people uh, with Christian uh, culture um, should they be able to uh, or can they um, restrict you know selling cakes to gay or homosexual couples. Again, by 1954, the court agreed with Marshall and overturned the Plessy case. This is to be noted: um, Eisenhower appointed a justice called Earl Warren. He's a Republican. And, uh, he picked them thinking that he would kind of, uh, maintain status quo, but Earl Warren had other plans. Interestingly enough, uh, I share a birthday with him. I'm very proud of that, that. And he ruled that separate facilities were inherently unequal and school segregation should end with quote, deliberate speed, highlight deliberate speed. So there's an urgency here that I mentioned before. And I need to, you to point out that, you know, you only need five votes to overturn, uh, you know, cases or laws that are in question. Because of that, Earl Warren knew that. So he really, really lobbied the other eight justices. And this was a unanimous decision. This is important because if there was ever a 5-4 vote, one can always make the claim that this is not a mandate from the people. This is not popular. It's politics. It's judicial activism. Earl Warren, and his wisdom, knew that. And he really, 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 really lobbied for the rest of the eight judges to unequivocally also agree upon his decision. Because of that, in other court cases in the future that he will be uh, responsible for or leading, we are going to call the Supreme Court Warren's Court. It's going to be a term popularly known in the media to showcase our Warren's leadership. Interestingly enough, before he made this decision, he was invited to the White House. And Eisenhower basically took him aside privately and said, I hope you understand the other's point of view. You know, the Southerners, they just don't want integration because they don't want black boys to be integrating or, you know, dating their white girls. In fact, he called them bucks, black people bucks. You know, or Warren took that in stride and did his case anyway. This is part of the mixed legacy of Eisenhower, one of my favorite presidents but I can still acknowledge that his own feelings on race really limited his decision-making. He regretted. He regretted appointing a Warren, but once you appoint a justice, it's hard to remove them. But still, despite his personal misgivings on the decision, Eisenhower was up told to uphold the Constitution, and he, that's exactly what he said. So in many cases, he is modern in the fact that he's not going to obstruct this he's not going to district he's not going to ignore the court order but he's not going to like it and very much like a soldier he will follow the orders that were given to him and you know maintain a healthy respect and adherence to the checks and pa- checks and balances that were established by our founding fathers so for that i kind of have to give him credit for that of course, this case is not going to go down quietly. There's going to be a lot of resistance in the South. The Supreme Court decision, 101 members in Congress signed the Southern Manifesto condemning the Southern Court's abuse of judicial power. Again, we start when people don't like when a justice may, or justices make this. Remember, this is a unanimous decision. You're going to claim judicial activism. You're going to start to attack one branch of the government. And you know you could see this hat playing out right now. State governments will fight the decision in a variety of ways, including temporarily closing public school and establishing private schools. So you can understand that even though the federal government has made a decision, you still have the uh, the power of state governments. And this is this is what makes our government uh, country great and, and horrible at the same time, right? We don't want an overarching national government. That's what our founding fathers did not want. So we created a system of federalism. But what happens... If those state governments are on the wrong side of history, what do you do then? You know, like how are you supposed to legitimize the power of the federal government because you're scared that they're going to be Orwellian or overbearing? But those very policies that they're passing is is morally correct. It becomes a little bit harder to say national government bad, state government's good, and vice versa. State governments are not necessarily bad, right? It's just utilizing these paradoxical values that we've had since the inception of our republic that make it really, really hard. And in this case, it makes it very hard for the civil rights movement to push for more reforms. There's always going to be resistance, especially if it comes down to the, the, the government, federal government. There's an inherent pathological fear of federal government, centralized authority. And the fact that nine people made a decision to overturn a court case getting closer to 100 years old is is unacceptable. So what's interesting, in the 1920s, the KKK was at its height, and it kind of tampered off in the 1930s and 40s, but now we're getting it again. And you should note that the KKK and the violence will only increase when rights are being promoted not the other way around right if there's status quo there's no reason for the kkk to go around you know lynching people and you know setting up burning crosses and you know damaging uh, the property of people of color it's only when they're threatened you start to see the agitation in fact not only these groups the kkk and you know congressmen and the federal you know ring are going to start to protest, but you have even state governors. In 1956, Orville Faubus is going to use his National Guard, and he's going to prevent nine black students from attending Little Rock Central High School, as ordered by the federal court. So the federal court's going to order that nine black students can attend Little Rock. Governor Orville Faubus is going to say, no, absolutely not. I ignore that. And we see tendencies uh, that are similar to uh, Jackson when he disregarded John Marshall's decision in Worcester v. Georgia, right? Well, Mr. Marshall, he's been courted to say, even though this is myth, he's been courted to say, well, you know, Marshall's made his decision. Let's see him enforce it. Governor Orville of in his state jurisdiction, he's going to cite the 10th Amendment as justification for calling the National Guard (laughs) to keep nine black girls from going into Central High School. And this is why I like Eisenhower. This is why... I'm not, you know, a PC police. I understand people are complicated and people have feelings and you they understand the time period and we can't expect, you know, people in the 1950s to live on 21st century standards. But Eisenhower, despite his personal misgivings of the court decision himself, is going to cite constitutional duty to enforce the federal law, and he will respond by sending federal troops to stand guard at the school to protect the black students. So we have a man here that is, again, uh, he's an allegiance to the Constitution, and he sees Governor Orville Faubus as someone that's challenging that. And even though he might agree with him on personal issues, he this is this is more important than personal politics. This is this is a matter of uh, establishing the supremacy of power. I mean, we had a problem in the 1860s. That's why we had a civil war who ought to have supremacy, states, or the federal government. Well, We already solved that, and now we have Governor Orville Faubus challenging that. So Eisenhower sends these troops, and you can imagine, if you were uh, watching this in the news, how scared you might be. On one hand, you might blame black people for this, agitating this, creating division within our country, right? On the other hand, you might see... The hypocrisy of the state governments, and and you might be more aware of what's going on, right? With this resistance, because before you might be like, "Oh well, everything's fine," and you know, there's an exaggeration what's happening in the South. And then when all of a sudden you see these resistance, right? You see the KKK, you see Fabius, and you see the Congress start to, you know, really violently and like, uh, you know, uh, sporadically, kind of uh, with great intention and intensity, resist this cause. You can start to see, well, maybe there's something to it. Well, despite this, this gallant uh, protection that the you know we'll call them again the, the you know the student nine of Little Rock, Little Rock Nine, that's what they're going to be known for. Less than two percent of blacks in the South will attend integrated schools, and I have an essay that I wrote that, based on my constitutional research and legality, we're going back. We're not going forward in terms of integration. And we will have a cool debate, I think, on that, whether or not we should have integrated schools. I mean, I think I do. I think we should. But if you look at the Supreme Court cases spanning all the way to 2000s, based on the decisions of the court, it's very interesting to see. Please read my essay for more details. Of course, you're going to have not only school segregation, right? Uh, trying to challenge that. You're going to try to challenge other services that are segregated, of course. This is going to be highlighted by the Montgomery bus boycott. 1955, you know, we we, we know the narrative. Bus driver orders middle-aged Rosa Parks to leave her seat to let a white person sit. And he, she refuses, Parks is promptly arrested by violating state segregation laws. Parks' arrest sparks massive protest in the form of boycotting city buses. Remember, once this happens, the NAACP picked this up. You know, they're looking for cases like this. And they're going to have a team of lawyers to support Rosa Parks. So, you know, although, you know, I don't want to downplay the bravery of Miss Parks, the use of test case litigation is again found here. Reverend Martin Luther King will help inspire the boycott, emerge as a civil rights leader, and emphasize Thoreau and highlight that. David Thoreau, a white transcendentalist an American. And Gandhi, principles of civil disobedience and passive resistance. So here we have a man that wants to use the democratic channels that were given to him. He loves this country. And he simply wants to make this country adhere to the standards that they claim they do. But because of the agitation and the resistance that will be found, a lot of people are going to associate black civil rights leaders with Marxist undertones because it's very difficult for them to discern between black people Wanting to agitate people enough to be aware to give them the rights that they deserve, and Marxists that are intended on overthrowing the institution. You know, when you see the federal government, state governments fighting, right? You see like soldiers and you see black people angry in the streets. Well, you, you know, you, as a white person, you might not know why, and you might start to make the assumption that there's some Marxist undertones here. There's a Marxist motive. They, they're not interested in this country. They're, they're interested in overthrowing. So people like Martin Luther King are going to be heavily suspect with Marxist ideologies, especially by the FBI and its longstanding director, J. Edgar Hoover. Federal laws are going to be passed as well. To ensure that Black people are going to have more rights. In 1957, 1960, Eisenhower will sign two civil rights laws, providing for a permanent civil rights commission. That's an agency. It's rights a group of people that are going to investigate any, uh, you know, rights abuses found in the states. And you know, under this act, it will give the Justice Department new powers to protect the rights of Blacks. The first civil rights legislation enacted by Congress since the Reconstruction era, might I add. So again, we have Eisenhower. He's not going to be the champion, perhaps, or the visionary of civil rights, but he's not going to obstruct it. He's not going to, you know, swat it down. He's going to promote it because he sees the political value in that as well as the social value. You know, things are turning around and he wants to keep order. But I must tell you, like his presidency, like him, it's modest in practice. It's going to be radical in effect. The fact that we have a permanent civil rights commission in our federal government, right? It's permanent. You can't, you know, strip it away and take away its budget, right? It's going to be a constant group of people, team of lawyers and investigators looking for any abuses. This is going to be huge for the 1960s. It's going to um, create the foundation for further progressive reform in the 60s and 70s. So for that, we have to, um, you know, Give credit where credit's due, and you know, the the Congress as well as Eisenhower. You can imagine now the conservatives on both sides of the party, right? The conservative wing of the Democrats and the conservative wing of the Republicans are fuming. What's going on, right? We'll talk about their comeback and the conservative resurgence um, in the 80s. And we'll talk about that later in other lectures. Of course, as you know, King, despite being viewed as a Marxist, is going to preach nonviolence, right? And that's going to inspire other groups, such as the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and other people, right? 1957, it's going to be a giant meeting where all ministers and churches in the South will get behind the cause of civil rights. This is very important. You know, some people, I read recently that, you know, the major difference between the Black Lives Matter movement and the civil rights movement back then it's not much, right? They're still they still want to achieve the same, pretty much the same goals, right? The only difference is you don't have the support of the church and ministry as you did back then. And whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent, the fact that we can utilize religion and we can have christianity be the main driving force to achieve these good acts you put a moral undertone to this right we, we can get lost in the legality right oh we shouldn't we shouldn't be doing this because uh the 14th amendment was invalidated because you know it, it goes against the 10th amendment and that was earlier and uh, founding fathers never expected the strong national government right it's easy to be clinical and calculating and you know take away the emotional personal uh moral um you know environment or context to this but the church leadership is not only going to be powerful, but it's going to inspire people to do this. And we, we haven't really seen this since the abolitionist movement in the 19th century. So again, uh, kudos to Christianity, because for, you know for some people who like to bash it, You know, this is, it's a double-edged, it's a double-edged sword, it's a a two-sided coin, right? On one hand, we can use religion to justify bad things, and we can use religion to do wonderful, wonderful things. And this is the case where Christianity, they're going to be organized, and they're going to help, you know, and support, and, you know, uh, the the, the platform of uh, MLK, who himself was also a preacher. Other students... Uh, you know, not just church leaders, but students are also going to be inspired. By 1960 Greensboro, North Carolina, they're going to have a, these students are going to form, um, you know, the Student Non-Vi- nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC for short, and they're going to initiate a sit-in movement after being refused service from a segregated lunch counter. What is a sit-in movement? It is what it sounds like. You just sit there. You take up space, so customers can't take that. So, in many ways, you're depleting money from that area. You can imagine if you're a store owner that you might want to call the cops. But again, civil disobedience is great in that as long as there's no violence and cops or other members of authority or other store owners do show violence, it shows the legitimacy of gaining these rights. You know, if there was fighting on both sides, you delegitimize it. So this is where nonviolence becomes really, really powerful because to the, you know, the uninitiated, the unaware, they're looking at a TV screen and they're watching, you know, a group of white store owners or cops beat on black or you know white liberals sitting, close their eyes peacefully. It doesn't look good. In many ways, it looks very similar to some of the totalitarian uh, methods that you you would see in the Soviet Union or in China, right? So. We have to start looking at it from this context. Right, wrong, or indifferent, but this is the this is the intention of some of these groups. They're going to be really, really inspiring, as I said before. Moving on, immigration. Not just black issues are going to be on the rise, but the issue of immigration will. Right, we haven't really thought ta- thought you know we really haven't talked much about that. We know there's a proliferation of immigration in the 1890s. This could be immigration quotas in the 1920s. But Congress will drop bans on Asian immigrants and eliminate race as a barrier to nationalization, which is really interesting considering we dropped the bomb on Japan, right, in 45. It's very interesting. I feel like we're at an age where, again, we want to show the world we're inclusive. We don't want to lose key interests in Japan and Philippines and Southeast Asia. And the best way to do that is not, you know... Close the door on them, right? We lost China in the revolution. The last thing we need is to have the Chinese, you know, highlight the fact that we're keeping, you know, Japanese out or you know other people from Asia out. So again, this is where progressivism is intertwined with uh, Cold War foreign policy. I have to say the quota system will remain in effect, but the fact that we're eliminating race as a barrier to naturalization is huge. Puerto Ricans. Uh, as american citizens can now enter the u.s without restrictions that's huge as well mexican immigrants elected to cross the border legally in order to avoid the the the, the baristos program uh this is a program in which you know it was very stringent It'd take a long long time so it's interesting we're keeping our doors open to Asia, or at least seemingly so. We want to also keep our doors open to our Latin neighbors, right? Because there's always a fear that communism will be infiltrated there on our Western Hemisphere, thus violating, you know, the Roosevelt Corollary or, you know, the Good Neighbor Policy or, you know, the Monroe Doctrine, as we discussed before. Um, Interestingly enough, we've always had a problem with Mexican immigration, and as you look, the U.S. will respond to Mexican immigration, illegal immigration, by launch- launching Operation Back, which is highly offensive now to our 21st century census, and will force approximately 3.8 million people back to return to Mexico. So again, this is something that you should keep in mind when you're making these connections from now until today.